the psalm is for those who face hardship, sufferings, and pain, whether in a small amount or whether in overwhelming great amount. Those who may be in the midst of it right now, those who are going to face it, no more is for everybody. Maybe in small measure, or maybe you feel like you've had your amount of suffering multiplied exponentially, and that's how you live. Some speak straight to your heart, to your soul. When you read the Psalms, there's, there's such a raw emotion in, in the Psalms. John Bunyan, I read a biography recently, and he was a pastor, not a great deal of education. He had to give himself to the Word. He loved the Psalms, he lived in the Psalms, and he talked about the Psalms as not like Pauline type of literature, which will lay out for you a, a systematic understanding of doctrine, systematic understanding of things. But the Psalms are painted in such brilliant color, teaching you how to think about God and how to feel to God. You read Pilgrim's Progress and you see all of that coming through John Bunyan's writing. All of these different characters and how they feel God, how they think about God and life. The Psalms, there's no holding back. There's no, you know, just putting a nice smile on it, softly saying it, or you know, not really telling you what it's thinking. It's just, they lay it out there. Such raw, real emotion. They lay it out poem and song in a way that is intense and beautiful in a way you can connect with. They admit that it's hard and sometimes they feel hopeless. They don't take joy as I'm so happy here to be flying and sleeping all around. Real genuine look into the heart and emotion of someone God. Church life, it's funny, when you think about church, there's a lot of buzzwords of church that people like to throw around and they really, it's what you're looking for in church. Like some of the community, you want a church that's authentic, that's genuine, that's real. You throw these out there and that's the kind of church I want. But really it's not the most part. You want to come where like Everyone's pretty happy. No one's going to be like really down the dumps to make you feel bad and awkward. We like to talk about that word real. But often the church just becomes where, you know, at least when you come in, put a smile on your face, sing the songs, don't get me involved with your down the dumps despair. And then it just becomes like that's what church life is. is everyone else seems happy, so I come in, you know, I'm going to pretend like everything. Because it's a lot easier to, you know, give a high five on one of these than it is to put your arm around somebody, to pray with them, to cry with them, to realize that their feeling of hopelessness might not completely be gone at the end of the first song. That their despair and their turmoil may last for months. And it's not just, hey, pray with a high five. Some willing to be down in the ditch, down in despair with them, bearing their burden alongside them, no matter how dirty, ugly, and stinky it doesn't happen for a period of time. They don't always say the right things, but yet that's real, raw, genuine, authentic community, not just. Live in denial about it. 
is to learn how to suffer well. To learn how to fight for joy in the midst of trouble, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of hard times. To realize that joy and hope is not the absence of difficulty and suffering. The title of the message that I bring down is The Fight is to Heal God. We're a church that loves doctrine, that hammers hard upon doctrine, that loves the proposition of truths, and we build our lives around it. But there's a church like that, there's always a danger, a tendency that when we start talking about feeling, emotion, we're like, this is a little bit right there. Let's not get all feeling. The psalm, the scripture, we just shout the opposite. It's a fight to feel God. He's crying out. I want to know you're there. I know it in my mind. I know what to think, but I want to know it in my heart. That I sense it, that I feel it, that I know it. God is my rock, God is my refuge. I know that. I don't deny it. But I feel like I'm out in the storm all by myself. The psalmist are just real and saying, God, I want to, I want to feel you. Not just to know you in my head, but to know you in my heart, for it to be real, tangible in my life. So it's a fight to feel God, and that's not a problem, and that's not something that we need to roll our eyes at and apply the doctrine. So, no, it's, it's a fight to feel my Father is near. My God cares about me, my God loves me. We're going to do two things. We'll Simply take the first half and kind of set the context of the song, and then we'll walk through it and look at four things we can use in our fight to feel God. Psalm 42 and 43, in this, that Brother Dan read both of those. Hopefully, you saw the continuity. If you weren't looking at your Bible, you probably didn't know where one ended and the other began. The psalm probably was a single song song at one point. See that in just the continuity, you see it in the repetition, the exact phrases used in, in both uh, Psalm 42 and 43. So that's why we're going to look at them both. Most of the Psalms, when you look through them, you'll see there's kind of a head nod in the Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness, the Psalm to the choir Psalm 43 has no heading, which again is just kind of an indication it probably fits right in Psalm 42. Psalm 42 is its heading. So we look at the heading there, Psalm 42, to the choir master, a master of the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah are a subset of the Levites who would lead the Israelites in procession and worship and singing. The organization, basically like they were worshiping. The sons of Korah, rocking it out the time, right? This is your worship team. So it's, it's from these the leaders of worship, from those who, who lead Second Chronicles 2019, the first one says, And the Levites, the sons of Korah, stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. So this is their role. So when you have this, now, Maskell, the sons of Korah. Maskell, that's a weird word because we don't really have an English word for it. So when that happens sometimes, it is transliterated from Hebrew. It pretty much has the idea, thrown on a verb with the idea to instruct, or to make wise, to strengthen. So what you have here is this song is an anthem of praise, or worship probably meant to be sung, but at least is used in corporate worship some way. And it's used in a way that's hopeful to strengthen, to instruct, to make wise those who are singing it or proclaiming it together. Very much like the goal of our, of our singing, the goal of our preaching. I don't know if John Piper's going to coin the term or not, but um, expository exaltation. And the idea of digging into the scripture to understand and make life with the goal of making much of Jesus Christ at all times, moving our hearts to joy and happiness. And not one absent of the other. That's kind of the idea here. It's a song meant for worship, meant to instruct and make lives and 
So as we go through, think of it as an anthem of worship from the congregation of the Lord. Not really a worship song like we would sing much. There's a lot of hurting, angst in it. Not just all jubilance. We see really the situation with the psalmist is that he has a divided heart. If you look at chapter 42, verses 8 and 9, you might have recognized this as Dan was reading, just going back and forth with the psalmist here who has a divided heart. It says, By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night the song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. Then the next verse, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Chapter 43, verse 2, for you are the God with whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? You can read that psalm and it's just these honest, these declarations of feelings of complete hopelessness. Why have you rejected me? This, uh, this heart that just feels like that. And yet statements of, of total, complete hopefulness. God is my rock. He is my refuge. He is my salvation. He is my God. And that's what we talk about, thinking and feeling about God. Uh, the divided heart. It's not a psalmist who we look at through our eyes as all we so wishy-washy, so the mind is just unstable. This is the common experience of many of our hearts a lot of the time. You don't deny that God is good. You don't deny in your head. You know these are true. You know that Jesus never forsakes his own, never leaves his children. And yet sometimes you feel in your heart and you cry out, Why have you rejected me? Why have you forgotten me? Why does everyone else I know have a good life and mine stinks? And you live with this divided heart. That's many times when people come up after a message and they want to talk and they want to delve into a message specifically because I know it's said, I know it's true, but I don't feel it. I don't feel like God's my rock and my refuge. Everyone else seems to like pray and somehow feel like God is interacting with them. I don't. In the psalmist, I think it's Psalm 80, 86, verse 11. The psalmist cries out, Unite my heart to fear your name, O Lord. I think this is what he's directing at. It's this divided heart of knowing, but just feeling, of, of living and suffering and, and anguish and stress and depression. Yet knowing truth, you see, unite my heart. Fear your name, O Lord. I'll go ahead and just I'll spoil it. I'll tell you up front. The song doesn't have like a great happy ending. So when you get to the end of it, don't think like he walked out 43. You know, 43 5. Why are you cast down my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, I shall get grace in my salvation and my God. We're going to see that he finds joy, he finds hope. It has nothing to do with walking out of a bad situation with being done with turmoil and pain forever. Let's look a little specifically at the psalmist. See what's taking place in his life. We know that there's some sort of external pressure, something external opposition that's causing some suffering in his life. Chapter 42, verse 7. Deep calls to deep, the Lord your water calls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Verse 9 and 10. I say to my God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go all morning? Because of the oppression of my enemy. With the deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. Well, they say to me continually, Where is your God? Again, he says the same thing in 43, verse 2. Why do I go about morning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. There are people that are making his life difficult. There's something externally that's opposing him. That is negatively kind of that taunting word for God. Which must mean that his life must look like God's abandonment. 
That's the time he conceived it. So there's some outward distress. But it's turned to internal, emotional pain, turmoil. That's what he's crying out. Verse 3 of chapter 42 says, My tears have been my food day and night. At some point you've experienced that where maybe it's a relationship that's just gone downhill and tank and it tears you up inside. It keeps you awake at night thinking about it. Maybe it's finances that just aren't there anymore. Maybe it's a, a bad decision you made. Maybe it's your job. Maybe I could go on and on. Maybe it's physical health. Maybe it's death of someone you love. I've had those experiences where a relationship has gone terribly and it's taken me completely by surprise and it consumes my heart, it consumes my mind. You can't really sleep, you really lose your appetite. For me, that means I sit up at night and I'm writing emails in my head. Well, how do you say this? Well, maybe I should say this. And then morning comes and thankfully you don't do anything. You start thinking about all And that's what he's saying here. It's consuming. It's lost its appetite. It's feeding on the sorrows. The tears have become his food, have become his meal. Verse 5. Again, he asks, Why are you cast down my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me like that churning water? That's how you feel inside. No peace. Complete turmoil. Verse 9. Why do I go in the morning? Chapter 43, verse 2, he asked me again, why do I go about mourning? Internal anguish, doubt, fear, depression, confusion, the things that just strike us. Again, you hear this, maybe for some of you, it's, this isn't how you live. You just have, have these glimpses and moments of it. You have some point in your life where it crashes on the market. Some of you, maybe this is just, yeah, this is how I live today. Probably you're thinking, I'm the only one who feels this way. You have no idea that the person next to you is tore up inside. Come to the point where he's asked God why. Chapter 42, verse 9, you see that it says, Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? 43.2 Why do I go about mourning? Why have you rejected me? Asking why to be an appropriate question at times. We're quick to slap someone in the hand for asking why. And for good reason a lot of times. You can't ask God why is it you can't judge the Lord's good sovereign plan in your own fallen feeble sense. Scripture tells us what right does the clay have to demand anything from God? He's potter, you're clay, he's a creator, you're the creation. And yet, all throughout Scripture, especially in the Psalms, there's that question of why? Why? I want to make a quick application here. When someone's really hurting and they're right in the midst of deep distress and anguish, be a very, very, very forgiving, tolerant, slow to speak person. Think of Job in the midst of losing everything. He kind of finally starts asking the questions and lays it out on the line to his friends. His friends started to immediately uh, shoot him down. In Job chapter 6, verse 26, he says this, You think that you can recruit words when the, when the speech of the spirit man is big. In other words, don't jump down someone's throat because when they cry out in anguish, it's not, you know, the vocabulary is theologically correct. Job says that it, it's, it's men. Don't judge a man in those despairing moments. God blows it away with a man. 
Maybe at times you come alongside that person, build a robust theology of suffering and the sovereignty of God and his love and understanding. But in the moment, someone faces real loss and anguish, a quick you know, correction to take out from the front. You do a lot more than just stick knife in the Just kind of beside them. Ask why here. It's the spirit, it's the heart, it's the wanting to know what, what is this purpose. There's nothing wrong with wanting to know that. It doesn't turn into demanding something from the pocket or simply play. And finally, we see that with the psalmist, there's external pressure, there's internal trouble. He's begun to ask, why God? Why have you rejected me? Why have you forgotten me? That's an overstatement. Know that that's how he feels. Feels like God has completely left him. It's an overstatement, just like you feel like you know God hasn't abandoned you, but you feel that way sometimes. So he asked that. Finally, we see that he's not given up. He hasn't lost hope completely, he hasn't rejected what he knows to be true. See that statements of God's goodness and God's faithfulness and truth all the time. So now, with this man, this person, the psalmist, painted in our mind in this situation, I hope you can identify with it as we head into the psalm itself. Can you hardly identify with that in moments of a divided heart? They're all people of the age to come, we learn this in Revelation, people of the age to come, living in an age that's passing away. There's going to be tension and hardship when that's the case. Because of the fall, everything's turned upside down. Relationships you cherish can also be incredibly hard. Dreams you have, desires you want in this earthly realm, you might never get. Might never reach. What was once a blessing in your life maybe now has become a real curse for you. We live in bodies that are decaying. We have minds that are, are, are feeble, that need renewed daily, that can easily get confused. You're going to face anguish and suffering of some sort. You're going to have that. How do we fight for joy, fight for fight to do that? I know it's long enough to that's captured. Alright, let's jump into chapter. We're going to look at Psalm 43. Psalm 43 basically takes Psalm 42 and just like compacts it. So we're going to look at Psalm 43, 3 through 5 are really going to be our main text, and then we'll fill in some of the detail of 42, where it's a bit more uh, poetic, colorful way it's filled in in 42. It's kind of a real punch at the end. 43. Four things to do. Fight to feel God. One, you're not going to be like Number one, pray for light and for truth. Pray for light and for truth. 43 3 says, Send out your light and your truth. Let them, let them lead me. In the midst of darkness, we need light. In the valley, we need light. We need our eyes to be open. We need our heart to be enlightened. To what? Expose the truth. That we see what is real, what is true. That we're not led by our own feeble sense. That we're not led by our own confusion, by uh, the distress we feel. And then in that distress, we use a relationship for 
the relationship falls apart, and then pretty soon you start judging all the motives behind everything they do, and then you start judging the motives behind their friends, maybe their friends, and before long you create this scenario, your mind's completely wrapped up in it. And now you're making decisions how you live based on your own feeble sense, your own bad judgment. He's saying, shine some light in this darkness. Give me some clarity, please, that I don't know what is real, what is true. And in Revelation, we've seen it over and over again, this promise of counterfeit gods, of counterfeit happiness, of counterfeit relief right here and right now. Just quit working so hard right now. Just partake of this. Just here, here's what is real. Here's what will be a bomb for your soul right now. And it leads to death and destruction. He's praying, give me light. That I'll know what is real. That I'll know what is true. That in the midst of my hurting, sorrowful, suffering heart, I don't make terrible decisions. I'll go hard after God. And I'll know what is real, what's true. He prays for that. Ephesians 1.18, Paul prays that. The people he writes to, he says, May the eyes of your heart be enlightened, and where the union know what is the hope to which you have been called. Again, it's that divided heart. Our, our eyes know, our, our brain knows what is real. But our heart feels, God, why have you abandoned me? And so when he cries out with a divided heart, God's my rock, but he's completely forgot about me. He's saying, Let me be guided by the light that I know God's my rock. Help me to feel that. Help me to know that is real. That is true. Be guided by that. Not by how my heart feels right now. That I'm abandoned and alone and rejected. He asks for vindication in chapter 43. Don't let my heart be driven completely by vindication. Let it be driven by what is real, what is true. easy application from that is giving yourself a genuine prayer and then claiming that promise. It's not just your own willpower that's going to make you see the light of the Spirit. What does he use? His word. Psalm 119, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. What brings light and clarity amidst the suffering is not closing yourself off from everything, it's opening your heart to the word. Letting, giving yourself to it, going to the word, and you won't feel like it. It's the people of God who speak clearly into your life, into your situation. Those are means that God's going to use to lead in prayer, word, community. It's not overly difficult, but our tendency is in those events to just kind of close in and believe what we that's a God's hand in the darkness, light shines brightly. Give me light, give me the truth. Let that be in my heart. Number two, preach to your own soul. Martin Lloyd Jones wrote a book called Spiritual Depression that is a mock song 42. And in there he has this quote. He says, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life? is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself. Again, instead of talking through the truth, you know, preaching to yourself, you listen to the, the feeling that I'm all alone, God's name. He says, most of the trouble in your life, most of your unhappiness is that you listen to yourself instead of talking to yourself. I think of it as we listen to ourselves, we can convince ourselves of almost anything. I'm, I'm like always on the diet, trying to lose weight, it seems like. But this is somehow I can like go from my diet to convince myself of like five guys, burger and fries, really the next best step. You know, like I can get there by listening to myself. You know, peanuts, that's not going to help me. Pickles, potato, or whatever, and then like burger patty. That's like 
It's not a head. It's so like, I don't like the way around it. And so I go on again, you know, you heard of Rye Street's massive in the bag. Oh, yeah, you can't share. And then, you know, <laughs> you convince yourself. And if you listen to yourself, you can, have you been in situations, and I keep using relationships because I feel like those are real. It's just the stressful times in your life where you can start convincing yourself that everyone really is against you. You are alone, are a victim at all times. Instead of preaching to yourself the truth, that God over and over and over and over again meets my needs. That God blessed me so richly and so abundantly. That His word is there. Preaching to yourself the truth. Look at the psalmist preaches to himself. That God is your hope. He mentioned it several times in verse 11, verse 5, uh, in chapter 43, verse 5, chapter 42, verse 5, verse 11. God is my hope. That is the truth. God is your hope. Preach it to yourself. God is your salvation. Preach that to himself. In the midst of darkness, we can see that in this week. God is my salvation. God is sovereign. Chapter 42, verse 7. It says, The deep calls to deep, and the roars of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over. This is all who's? It's God's breakers. It's God's waves. You can't control your circumstances, but God isn't overcome by your circumstances. You get hit by a wave, it's not like God is with you saying, oh, I didn't see that coming. Who do you next? His waves, his breakers. God has purpose for them. The purpose is your good. It might be a really painful, long, providential hand of God, but it is a kind providence nonetheless. He's sovereign. Reach that to yourself. And it feels like life's out of control. God is faithful. Look at verse 8 of chapter 42. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me. Prayer to God in my life. He's faithful in the day, he's faithful in the night. Instead of rehearsing all the bad things in your life, instead of just focusing on everything your moms have and you don't have, instead of, I always have to make applications social media, instead of using social media to your platform to list every bad thing that happens to you in your life and most everybody else's, preach to your soul truth. Your social media page to list how God is good to you all the time. All the blessings that you have. So with that divided heart, preach yourself through. Overcome that feeling of God rejecting you. God is God. Number one, pray for light and for truth. Two, preach to your own soul. Three, go after God and worship Chapter 43, again, just walking through that text in verse 3. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill, to your dwelling. Bring me to your holy hill, to your dwelling. Bring me to the presence of God, the place of worship. For them, the temple, where God's presence dwells in a very real, significant, and unique way. Lead me to your presence. Lead me to where you are. Lead me to where worship is taking place. Look back at chapter 42. Verse 4. The soul is in anguish. It's hard to overcome. And he says in verse 4, These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go wrong and lead them in concession to the house of God. 
loud, glad shouts and, how, and songs of praise, a multitude, heaping festival. My heart's overcome, I'm pouring out my soul. What does he remember? Corporate worship, church service. That's what is strengthening for him. The application is immediate right here for us. What do you think happens in church? Is it just, you know, this is where my friends are, we get together, there's some good songs, and, you know, some are like better than others, there's a good message, some that you like better than others, you know, you an offering, some that are better than others. <laughs> you know, it's just, you know, it's like, yeah, it's a pretty good Sunday. Others, like, eh, we know that, whatever it's going I'm not saying you're going to come in here every time and be like, my world is shattered and I'm ready for everything. When the people come together together, something very unique and special happens. God's presence dwells, is with each of us, we're always near God. God's presence dwells with those congregated in a special way. He tells us that several times in Scripture. We learned in Revelation, right now, in the candlesticks, in the church, Jesus Christ is in our midst. He is our head. We're commanded to grow in the image of Christ, but Ephesians tells us that that's done in community. That I need you, and you need me, each of us, in order to rightly grow into the image of the Son. There's divine, human, amazing, life-changing, life-giving, eye-opening interactions that take place in worship when we're together. And sometimes you feel it, you feel the spirit, you feel the anointing, you feel a deep moving service. Other times it's just, you know, the plotting. The article I and I have read, maybe it's a little bit article here, it's called The Glory of the Plotting. It's just that when you lose harvest in ministry, there is this glory, just keep going. And you're strengthened. And sometimes it's just the fact that going takes your mind off your own problems for a little bit. When you, in humility, consider someone else's interests above your own. When you start working for them, being joyful in their victories, leaving with their losses. And there's a body dynamic. And in the midst of terrible anguish and terrible pain, one thing he remembers is not, it's not just like I had a good time in church. It's the strength and the empowering of corporate worship. I'm just challenging. I'm not trying to get over the top. I realize everyone's busy. Schedules are hectic. People are going everywhere. Vacations and sickness and all kinds of things happen. But if there's like 42 things that are important to you, and then the church, if it fits in, it's going to cap off your meat. That's wrong. You're setting yourself up to not fight for God. Not fight to heal God. It has to take some priority and, and some real reconsideration in your mind. If right now it's I'm busy, if I have time, I'll go to church unless busyness will leave me too tired. Yeah. Don't think like, you know, Todd Adam and I are up here with checking it off every time you in. You make it ten times in a row. That's not it. We understand things happen. But we also understand that church is never just convenient. If you only come when it's convenient, you only serve others when it's convenient. It's like you know, the Bible see you at Christmas time. It's gotta be real priority. You have to have the right view of the ordinances and baptism, following the Lord that and the Lord's Supper. There is strength that opens your eyes to the light of God even in this really hard, troubled things. And then he says, chapter 43, in verse 3, So that we're like your truth, but bring me to your holy hill, to your dwelling place. You see how he remembers the worship. Then verse 4 of chapter 43, Then I go to the altar of God, it's the altar. It's a place of sacrifice. It's a place of, of pleading your case. 
This place of coming and asking for forgiveness. A place where you and your unrighteousness can approach God. A forgiveness of atonement of sacrifice. That's what the psalmist looked forward to. On this side of the cross, we look back and you realize it is Jesus Christ. The chief high priest. The perfect sacrifice. The altar. It is Jesus Christ. It is the cross. And it always takes you, your worship always takes you to Jesus Christ. We talk about Christ centered, we'll just say it because that's what you're to say. It's got to be real because Christ must be at the center of our worship. If we're facing hard things, we're trying to overcome despair, go to the cross. You see, Jesus Christ asked the body, Why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22. You repeat Psalm 22 when he's on the cross. You see what Jesus Christ went through. You know the God Father will never forsake you. Because he gave you Jesus Christ. Chris said in his prayer, uh, Romans chapter 8, he's given us the greatest gift, which is Jesus Christ. How will he not also with him freely give us all things we need? Including really difficult things to turn out for our perseverance and our good. It takes you to the altar. It takes you to the cross. So pray for life and for truth. Preach to your own soul. Go after God and worship. And then number four, number four, this is the goal to experience God, not necessarily believe. It's not like we do all these things, God is going to move us into a better position. Wanting to believe is not a bad thing, it's not a bad desire, it's not a bad thing to pray for, to strive for. But the real joy, the real promise, the real goal of this song is that you experience and feel God, that your heart is united. Not that you get outside. You see that in 3 verse 4, it says, When I go to the altar of God, to God, my exceeding joy. And what's he say after that? Praise him, verse 5. Why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you turning on me? Hope in God, and I shall give praise and salvation. It isn't the absence of suffering, the absence of trauma, the absence of pain. It's that it's exceeding joy is God. But when everything else in life is, is your joy is stripped away, it's God who is your exceeding joy, who is never, ever stripped away. So that your hope and your joy is based totally upon peaceful relationships, and that's stripped away. And if your joy is based fully upon a specific desire that might be fulfilled, God gives you that desire, doesn't give that desire in your heart. Your joy is not stripped away because it's God there. And your joy is in your family, and your, your parents, or in your child, God takes one of them home to be with himself. Joy isn't gone, it's disappearing. Because your exceeding joy is in God. It's placed in Him. Not just in the blessings and the gifts that surround God saved yesterday, today, to your eternal future salvation. When you run to Him, there is joy. Even when everything else fades away. Beginning how it begins here in chapter 42. It says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. The real goal of your thirst isn't need to be out of the valley. I need to have all my suffering gone. I need to have food. In the midst of it, 
soul thirsts God to experience God and suffer. Here's where I think so often our mindset on suffering, all of us, everyone, just naturally, we work to overcome it, is that somehow suffering is what's blocking us from God. If we could just get this relationship squared away, if we could just get financial city squared away, I could, you know, just get out of that dirty rental into a nice house, and that would take care of it. My car is not a piece of trash, I would be that would take care of me. You feel like that. I just wasn't so busy. If I just we think walking in kind of unified heart, we really have to enjoy it. It's all these obstacles in the way. Suffering serves us in two ways. One, it protects us from thinking this life is as good as it gets. Laying down roots that my citizenship is here and now. I am part, happily part of the age of the passing away. Instead, we live a part where we know there's something missing. We know that something is crooked and wrong. We long for more to be a citizen of heaven, which we right now are, Philippians tells us. Live that way. Why can Paul say to Philippians, to live as Christ, die as King? I've learned how to be abased, I've learned how to be bound, I'm always content, I'm always quick. Because God was his delight. Because suffering in his life, his life had produced the fruit of wanting to be with God. Right now that meant service, I'm dying, it's just gain. Suffering protects us from sinking down roots and joy where right now, Best that's ever going to get for us. Secondly, suffering helps us that that idea that in the darkness the light shines most brightly. Think of it this way: you live like we do, like one of like apartment or townhome type thing. Your car is on a busy street, parked away away. You forget your phone in the car, you got to run down and get it. It's late, you run down and get it. No problem. Same situation the next night, only you just watched a really scary movie. So, you know, watch this movie. And now you're trying to stop the grave. I've got my phone. Baby. You're like, you know, open the door, looking out, just kind of slow, looking at your way to the car. You the rustles. Your senses are all hype. That backpack that you loved in your car had no whatsoever. Now you see like the shadow in the That's definitely something. Definitely. All your sense, senses are just your own edge, our height. Suffering does that in your life. And where before it was just like lock the car back and you don't notice what's going on. Suffering heightens all those senses where you see the hand of God at work. It's little ways and big ways. You see the word of God ministering and feeding your soul. You see other suffering. And you, you are able to minister to them. You're, you're sensitive to where did that prayer becomes precious. Small victories become precious. Coming to worship in the body of Christ becomes precious. All your senses are really heightened and aware of the Spirit and what He's doing in your midst, what God is doing in your midst that leads you to the light of the worshiping God. Here's when everything's just cool for you, you're just kind of cruising through and not noticing anything. Suffering serves us in those two ways the psalmist showed to us. Again, if you have a wrong please don't, I'm not asking you to go just like create really bad scenarios for yourself. Or like feel like it's wrong to see relief in this That's it. No more medicine. I want to that, That's not what I'm saying. God tells us how to suffer well. It's to find our exceeding joy in Him. Not only the joyful in my circumstances are 
light to feel God. Unify my heart with God. If you're in a situation like that right now, pursue these steps that are kind of laid out here by the Psalms. Praying for light and for truth. If you're not in a situation now, right now, you're going to be in something. Pray for light and truth to be guided by what is real. Guide what knows truth. Preach it to your soul. Don't rehearse all the feelings you have. Don't continue to hope and live over and over and over again. All the difficulties. Then examine everyone else's life and realize what yours is just like totally awful compared to theirs. Rehearse what you know to be true. Preach it to your soul. Simply, God is hope. God is my salvation. God is sovereign. God is faithful. Go hard after God in worship. Don't deny yourself the congregation of the saints. Let it drive you to Jesus Christ, the altar, the atonement, the sacrifice, the blood. Then you pursue your goal is to experience God, to delight in Him, He's your exceeding joy, that He's what you thirst for, that He's what you hunger for. Not just believe. Then the verse 2. Says, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come to fear before God? Literally, when shall I come before the face of God? When shall I see His face? You see the face of Jesus Christ. Give yourself to Jesus Christ. God, we thank you for your word that ministers to us, and we thank you for your song, for the richness and the emotion that. You work on it. Not always to make our life easier, but to make it so much joyful, cool, meaningful, rich. We will pursue you, not just pursue the need. Lord, as a body, words we like to say, genuine, authentic, and we all those that would be real. When someone comes in and down, down, we don't just ignore them until they can be happy. Lord, we love them, we surround them. Together, we work to see the heart that you provide them. We love them, God. We pray. Amen.